0: Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We continue to address this section in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians where we've been seeing him lay out the earthly reality of the mediatorial role of Christ. This earthly reality of the mediatorial role of Christ comes to us by way of the institution of the Christian church, that body that Christ has established for the continuance of the building of this body, of this temple of believers, as well as as well as as well as it's flourishing and ultimately it's finishing at the end of the age and so there is this earthly reality of the rule of Christ as we finish off this section of that looking at these domestic roles that Paul gives to us at uh, in, ver- in chapter five, begin in verse twenty-two all the way through verse nine of chapter six. Here we see that all these things are couched in his final general exhortation in Ephesians chapter five, verse uh, twenty or verse eighteen, that they would be filled with the Spirit, and that this filling of the Spirit would produce in them a willing a a joyful subjection to one another in the fear of Christ there in verse 21. And so we have seen that in this uh, subjection and service to one another in the fear of Christ, that husbands are to serve their wives through leading them in godliness self-sacrificially that wives serve their husband by willingly fo- willingly, willingly following their husband's authority, and children serve their parents by honoring them with obedience. Parents serve their children by raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And as we will see, this relationship of slave and master and the service due to to both within their roles. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5 through verse 9. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again this morning. Oh Lord, we do come before you to seek your help as we address your word this morning. First, that you would help your clay vessel this morning to speak forth your word in accordance with your word, that which is, that which the spirit, Lord, would make effectual to your people towards the end of the furtherance of their faith or the beginning of new faith, that this word would be received by our ears and implanted in our hearts as it is true to your scripture, O oh Lord, that we would be not just hearers also, but doers of your word. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, a few weeks back, you may remember that as we addressed the role of parents uh, towards their children, we saw that there was five, or I I drew five, exhortations recognizing that parents are to seek uh, formation over performance. That they were to seek clarity over severity as it relates to punishment. That they were to recognize and be humble and not hubris in their knowledge before their children. That they would also be consistent and not instable and so that they wouldn't provoke their children to anger. And that they would recognize that their authority is one that has been delegated to them and so that they would not be, uh, not seek to dominate their children but to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I bring these back to our minds is because as we enter into this last set of household roles between what's here in, uh, translated as slave and master, we may come to an understanding that many of these uh, things apply also within these roles, especially as it relates uh, to masters over slaves. And so we're going to address it this morning because I think it'd be appropriate. We should address it this morning under four headings Definitions and limitations, those are the first two headings, and then graces and gratitudes. Definitions and limitations, graces and gratitudes. We want to start with definitions because as we address this passage this morning, we recognize there are at least two uh, hot-button, controversial words that are here translated into English for us as slaves and masters. There's something that we must understand about these two words and about the practice of slavery and, and, and the role of masters in the first century as it was present to the people in in Ephesians, as well as to uh, the history presented to us in scripture. And we're going to look first at this idea of God's decree, not design. Here's a few examples. Marriage was designed by God for the good of humanity, to be a permanent relationship between a man and a woman. But he also decreed that divorce would be the outcome of the fall. And so within the Mosaic law and implied within the moral law, we see divorce regulated. Just because uh, scripture, especially in the Mosaic law, we see things regulated, that doesn't necessarily mean that that was God's design as it relates to uh, the garden or to that impeccable state that God first created man but so God works all things for his for our good and his glory we recognize that these things are to be regulated in this age again government government was designed by God for the good of humanity but he also decreed that fallen man would abuse this power intending evil yet God working it for the good of his people and so it is with labor 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 god designed work for adam in the garden to be his imaging of the creator in his work it would be for his good but god has decreed and by decree if you're not familiar with that decree is what we're saying is what god is foreordained to happen what god is what god is uh decreed in his sovereign will to come to pass as he shapes all his creation towards a crescendo end of his glory and ultimately our good, our salvation in Christ, so that we can look back and see that in God's decree, if if, if there is no decree of God and and one that we serve a God who is just picking up the pieces that we broke or that he's reacting to us in some humanistic way, he's growing in knowledge as we grow in knowledge, then we are essentially in like manner as him. We make God as, our, as the same being as us. He's just a greater being. And yet we read in Scripture that God says he's not like man that he is wholly other, that he is—he describes himself as the I am. That is, he has his existence of and in himself, where us as creatures could never say that. And so if God does not have a decree, then he doesn't shape things sovereignly. He shapes things feebly to the best of his ability. He becomes like the gods of the of the Roman Empire, or the gods of the Greeks who react and respond to the workings of men and, and often fall into their own temptations and fall into their own evil. But here we serve a God better, Scripture tells us of a greater God who can decree all things that come to pass for his good and perfect purposes. And so God has decreed that a broken, in a broken world, or that a broken world would produce such variations of stations of work, whereby some would be slaves and some masters. But this too is not beyond the renewal of Christ in this age and the next, as we will see. And so, as we recognize that when we use this word "slave" and "master," as in our American context, in this in this time, as as it was dating back to at least the uh, 16th century, when we hear "slave," we think of a singular form of slavery: this transatlantic slavery of the 15 to 1800s. It's a modern system. of of slavery as it relates to the history of man. And we see that it runs roughly from the 1500s to its American demise in the Civil Civil War. That there were two related and fundamentally immoral phases of this slave trade. And I'm gonna say that this is in comparison to what is uh, spoken of here in scripture, what Paul would exhort these slaves here uh, in their relationship to their masters as a, as in, contra- in, in contrast to the transatlantic slave trade of Western Europe and the Americas, and actually uh, the African uh, continent also. But these two... Uh, uh, related and fundamentally immoral phases of the slave trade. One was the massive system of slave capturing in Africa. The other, more narrowly focused in the United States, was the massive system of domestic slave trading in the antebellum era. Antebellum is another word that we should be familiar with. It just means after uh, or before the war. So before the Civil War, the, the slave trading that took place took place under and were dependent upon treating slaves as uh, chattel. I don't know if you're familiar with that word, but it's usually referenced to this type of slavery, whether it's antebellum slavery or chattel, chattel slavery. This idea that people, specifically uh, these Africans, were treated as property. They were not uh, people in their own right. They were property of the slaveholder. And so this entailed a variety of sins. The actual practices of chattel slavery denied the slaves their basic dignity as humans made in the image of God. And we recognize that, that this idea of slavery as being as some making it one for one for what's promoted in not promoted what's what's regulated in scripture, and then so putting upon scripture an immoral casting that that this was that this even that this was um, approved by scripture, and though there were many in the south. Many who took on the name of Christ, who said that it was appropriate according to Scripture to have slaves in that manner, we recognize that those men were wrong according to Scripture. Because it was the same Scriptures that were then used by other Christians to promote the abolition of slavery. The abolition of slavery began in the church and was a war, in essence, against the other wayward church, though we see it playing out on a grand national stage also within the Civil War. And so it's something to come to grasp with as we read this idea that these slaves are to be obedient to their masters and not seek, uh, so that we would say, that some might say, uh, so then, the Underground Railroad, or any such organization that sought the freedom of these slaves, the, sla- uh, the freedom of the slaves, being wrong, we would say, no. What was happening in uh, the slavery of the pre-Civil War era was a slavery contrary to Scripture. Actually, we recognize even those that saw it contrary to our founding documents, that all men were created equal. And endowed with inalienable rights by their creator, right? It was a recognition that that, there, that that dignity rested in a human being because they were made in the image of God. Turn with me to First Timothy chapter one uh, quickly, as we just want to see where this is condemned in Scripture, just to uh, be sure of it in our minds. 1 Timothy chapter 1 uh, really begins, in this section begins in uh, verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for mur- murderers, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching i want to i want us to focus on that word kidnappers there here in the nasb or in other modern translations it's translated kidnappers the king james i think gets at the uh the heart of the word better by translating it as man-stealer. Man-stealer. And again, an alternate literal translation would be enslaver. So there, amongst this litany of sins, contrary to the moral law of God, is put in man-stealer or enslaver. Certainly, when we think of kidnappers in our current day and age, we recognize we're thinking of people napping kids, taking kids. And certainly that's wrong. But here being addressed would be those that would steal any image bearer of God and claim them as their own, especially as their own property. And so condemned in scripture, we find the Chantel slavery of the South, that there would be no one that could stand that could keep a slave in which they stole or in which they considered as property. And we'll see just in the same as Paul's exhortation to the masters here is that they should not view their slaves in such a way. And yet we recognize that the Greek word used can be translated both as servant or bond servant, but also can be translated as slave. And we recognize that as it relates to the slavery addressed here, it was uh, something akin to indentured servitude. Certainly, there were slaves that were born into it. If you were a son of a slave, you'd be born into uh, that uh, relationship. There were those that fell into it through their own interactions and their own unwise dealings, and they were beholden to people in debt and they would have to work off their debt as servants, as well as there were others uh, that uh, even fit the, the term of, um, of captured uh, those in war. Those may have been captured in war and been, and been made slaves. One of the things we see in Scripture is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul actually has a word towards slaves in such a relationship where is there, uh, usually slaves were in a position, whether they're indentured servitude or in a position of uh, being able to buy their freedom or earn their freedom. And chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter seven twenty one says so. He says, were you called while a slave? So in other words, were you saved? Were you called by Christ while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. Paul recognizes the, the temporality of this uh, uh, relationship of slave and master and says, if, you, if you're able to earn your freedom, you ought to do that. And, and in, in likewise, he would be uh, exhorting the masters to, if you're able to grant freedom, that you should do that it wasn 't always uh, in, in 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 the relationship it wasn 't always able to do that, but it was something that Paul encouraged and so we see something of the character or flavor of the slavery that 's addressed in Ephesians and hopefully we see that in contrast to the slavery that we 're familiar with in America or certainly western uh, the Western European and American culture from that 16th century on. And so we recognize that there is a distinction that we would not uphold anything uh, remotely like uh, the antebellum slavery. We would condemn it as immoral and as uh, unjust, but we would not uh, do so based in any way of race and ethnicity we would do so based upon the, the one race that God created, which is the human race, and we would say no man should treat another image-bearer in such a way. The other thing we see is, is, so we've come to understanding hopefully something about slave. Let's look at masters. That in an absolute and most proper sense, there is none that may be called master but God. Paul, uh, Christ said no no one should be called teacher. There's only one teacher. And Christ walked around teaching. What, what's going on here is we recognize that there is only one absolute and most proper sense. In the most absolute and proper sense, none shall be called master but God. And that God is the only one that has an absolute, independent, unlimited power of himself and has all others at his command and direction. And he alone is fit for this despotic monarchy, this, this singular uh, consolidation of power uh, rule. Despotic monarchy, as it's put here. Being infinite in wisdom, goodness, and justice. And this clears the meaning of those words of our Savior, Call no man father, master, but God. That is, look upon none as absolute, infallible lords of the conscience, conscience, but him. And so we recognize that what Scripture is saying here in recognizing the term master, it gives no uh, absolute rule to these uh, people. It puts them not in the role of, of a consolidated powerful rule, but as a subordinate rule. That those to that are to rule under the one and only absolute and proper master who is God. And we recognize that God it, obtains the, or has this uh, title because he's Absolutely independent and unlimited in power of himself, and I think as we continue on in this year, we'll have an opportunity to study God's attributes, especially how He has revealed Himself in uh, in a singular essence and yet in three persons. As as we continue on in that in our smaller groups. But for us this morning, we must recognize that as scripture recognizes the term master here, it recognizes it as a very subordinate role. And it's certainly only as a role as it relates to this domestic uh, relationship. And so in a limited and correspondent sense, there are earthly masters that are to be obeyed as unto Christ so far as they do not require that which is contrary to the law of God. We have this example in Joseph and Potiphar's wife where he was commanded by one having authority to commit a immoral act. She had the authority to command Joseph to do and go and do things and right up against where he refused to sin against both her domestic uh, authority, her husband, but also he says God. And so we see that as we look at the limitations of these uh, roles or of this role of slave and master. And as we look at these limitations, we'll see some applications for us uh, today. Because we see these limitations within the words of Paul because he's not giving absolute power to such men because he tells them in such phrases that they are masters according to the flesh, that they are to be slaves as slaves of Christ, and that both their master and yours is in heaven. All three of these phrases modify the obedience of the servant and regulate what a master ought to require. Again, in a term of social and civil thing, this is a revolutionary teaching for this ancient Greek culture. For the master had power over everything up into death, life and death of his servants in this setting. And here the word of God is saying, no, no, there is a master above you whom you will answer to, whom you both answer to. And in other places, Paul says there is no Jew or Greek, slave or barbarian. It says there is no male or female. What what was Paul saying there? He's not saying all social roles are are done away with and and there is no civility there. But he's saying before God and in Christ we are all one. As he said earlier in chapter 4 that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so Paul is not saying in any way that there is a gradation in the body of Christ, but there is only one people of God. And so these three phrases modify the obedience of the servant and regulate what a master ought to require. The first one is according to the flesh. His understanding is that both stations should remember that there is only one Lord of the conscience and one keeper of the soul. Calvin says that he reminds them that their spiritual freedom, which was by far the most desirable, remained untouched, especially as it related to the servants. He's saying that these these masters are only masters of the flesh, that you you are secured by the good shepherd. You are secured by the good master in Christ and that your freedom in Christ is untouched by your relation to uh, your earthly master. John Gill says, signifying that they are only masters over their bodies, not their consciences, and that their power only extends to corporal or um, fleshly things and can last no longer than while they are in the flesh. That this relationship that God is allowed, that God is in his decree as allowed to exist will one day end. Just as we will see parent and child end, just as we will see husband and wife end in the age to come. For in the age to come, we will all have one father, we will all have one husband, and we will all have one master. And so this as a limitation on uh, the servant's obedience comes by way of his reminding them that they are masters according to the flesh. And so, for those that sat in the congregation, and again in this congregation, we also assume there were both slave and master, maybe from the same household, sitting like you are on the same level in the same rows. Maybe I don't. We don't know how they organized uh, their. Uh, circumstances of how they gathered in the church, but the idea is that they were under one roof, listening to one word, praising the same God. And so the master would have heard also that his authority was limited to according to the flesh. Also that these slaves were slaves of Christ, that they were to obe- obedient. It says, uh, rendering service with goodwill, or not by way of eye service as men pleasers, in verse 6, but as slaves of Christ. That both slave and master there in the body would have heard that they were to obey and serve one another, they were to serve one another as of Christ so that, that their servants weren't to obey them according to their own authority, but they were to obey them as slaves of Christ. Of Christ, again, that they would see that their authority was delegated and serving our earthly supervisors, as we can translate this to something of our own work relationships for uh, most of us aren't in expressed indentured servitude, though I know there is an organization or an institution that would come and take my home if I stopped making payments. Uh, Maybe that's the situation for some people with their cars or other things. Uh, So there's a sense of indentured servitude. And where do we receive that according to the flesh is by our employers. And so though our employers aren't a one-for-one here of masters, and we aren't a one-for-one here of slaves or servants, there's a similarity in relationship where we depend upon them for such things. And so we are to see in our service to our earthly supervisors that we serve Christ, and so are beholden to God and not man, that there's a limitation to such things. And that obedience will be co-extensive until they conflict at which we are to obey God rather than man. So as long as these things are not contrary to God's law, our obedience is coextensive. That as we obey our supervisors, our earthly supervisors, we are obeying God, and similarly for those that supervise. Again, that the, the supervisor would recognize that they can't touch uh, things that are set apart for God. That they can't uh, demand obedience to them as they as they as they are to give to God. And so, as we'll see, they are ready to dole out, as a Christian uh, supervisor, grace, um, uh, when appropriate and able. The final uh, limitation is that there is a master of both. John Gill, again, was helpful for me. He says, meaning Christ, who employs, provides for, And uses well all his servants, and to whom masters must be accountable for in their usage of servants. For he is the common master of masters and servants. And that the servant didn't go to Christ through their master. For there is only one mediator between God and man. And so here we find that this limits these roles, because... Uh, that, the, that the master of the house wouldn't stand in any mediatorial role between them and God, but that they would offer as Christians, and especially if they had a relationship being united in Christ, that they would offer them freely, freely to go to God through only the mediation of Christ. Though they may seem like Uh, thin limitations as it relates to such things, they are limitations nonetheless. And so we may stand with boldness to obey God rather than man as it relates to any of those that have supervisory authority over us, as well as if we have that authority, we should consider such things. Our last two headings as we move away from definitions and limitations are graces and gratitude. First as we see in here graces as it relates to that they are to obey slaves be obedient to your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and in sincerity of your heart as to Christ again in verse 7 as to the Lord and then, and then in other places uh, and it says for there is no or at the end there is no partiality with him these are the graces afforded to them in this. That, that is, we recognize that we can't fully understand what it would mean to be in such a position as these slaves, we have some idea. And so as we have some correspondence there, we may consider our own situation and our own employment as something akin to this by way of having maybe an unjust supervisor. Uh, one who requires extra work from you and not from others, or requires uh, above and beyond what the company does. That we would recognize that, that there is some graces afforded to us within this, as well as especially as to those who were in this first context. That as to Christ and as to the Lord, it would remind us that our working is in Christ. Essent- essentially saying that our freedom has been won, and so no physical circumstance can change that fact, that we would rest in Christ alone, not over the next uh, financial hurdle, not over the next uh, um, ambitious goal that we may have in our career, but in Christ alone. We have this grace that as we serve those that were in uh, Submission to, or that those that are in supervisory role over, we submit to them as to Christ, which means that we are reminded that our working is in Christ. And here Paul hearkens back to the opening sentence, I believe, in verse one, or chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. This hasn't changed by the time we got to chapter 6. God has blessed those first century slaves with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth in him. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purposes, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then just those first few words of verse 17, uh, 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. What a wonderful thing it must have been for uh, those first century slaves to hear that they have an inheritance. Slaves didn't get inheritances. I mean, some were afforded something by the kindness and benevolence of their master, but on the, on the regular, they weren't afforded an inheritance. And yet here they find out they don't just have an inheritance, they have an eternal inheritance. They have an unchanging inheritance. They have one that is a grace to them. The other thing we see is that there's no partiality with God. What a graceful reminder it must have been for them to think of such things. We're reminded of such things in our interactions within the church in in James's letter as we can read about in James chapter 2. If you want to turn with me there, it's just a few verses. James chapter 2 beginning in verse 1, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And then he goes on to talk about uh, choosing the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. Consider God having no partiality. Again, for those in that first century context, what an encouragement it was to hear. And even for us. For we recognize that this goes beyond just uh, the physical, but the spiritual also. As fallen creatures in Adam, we still feel the shame of that first sin in our interactions with others. Where insecurities would have uh, prevented us from loving them as we love ourselves. But in God, there is no partiality. There is no elite Christians. There are no those that are more saved than you. There are not any those that are more united to Christ than you are. And certainly, I hope there's nobody in this room to think that there are any people less united to Christ if they have sincerity of faith. And so we recognize that even in this uh, teaching about slaves and masters and their actions, there would have been graces for especially the slaves to hold on to. That there would have been checks upon the ego or, or the pride of the masters where they would come into an understanding that they stand before the one true and living God. It's to him alone that all men will answer. And that they may see that which is given to them in Christ. And so in that, they may, with gratitude, obey these words. Consider, under our last heading, these gratitudes. The question out of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's divided into three sections: guilt, grace, and gratitude. That we uh, are, uh, we we have fallen in Adam, and so we exist in all sin and misery. And then how we are to be delivered from all sin and misery. And then finally, that what we owe to God for delivering us from all sin and misery. So in the section, that first question in that section that begins gratitude, it's since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? If you're not going to earn anything in being obedient, if you're not going to earn anything by being benevolent in your interactions with those uh, in your workplace that are in an inferior place or an inferior rank or station, if you're not going to earn anything by that, then when? why should you do such good things? The answer is because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also restoring us by his spirit, into his image so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits that we that he may be praised through us so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits and so that our godly living by our godly living our neighbors may be won over to Christ as a worker unto Christ we must work to the best of our ability regardless of the circumstances or positions in which we find ourselves. If possible, you can, you can work your way out of those circumstances, as Paul says, but we must, in the meantime, to the best of our ability, regardless of the circumstances, render service to those in proper authority over us as unto Christ and as those who supervise they should supervise as unto the Lord. Christians who supervise others in the modern West are certainly not slave owners, but they may broadly apply Paul's teaching by treating those under them well. Christian leaders ought to lead with integrity towards the companies or their own standard, but they also ought to show grace to those laborers under them when they when they are able. And if you supervise Christians... Remember that you have the same Lord and are united in the same Christ. And insofar as you are able, endeavor to make it easy for others to serve you gladly. The final thing we see in this as a gratitude is that in two places, Paul says, knowing this. Both stations end with this type of phrase, both in verse 8 and verse 9. Verse eight says, knowing this, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And at the end of verse nine, it says, knowing that both their master and yours in heaven is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. We are to know something before we are to do something. We're not to co the good we do in our sanctification with the righteousness of Christ in our justification. This is to deny the gospel. Yet, we must never separate sanctification from justification. And so Paul does that. He says, knowing this, and then applies it by saying, do good. Knowing this, serve well knowing that Christ has fully justified you before God, live according to that righteousness. We recognize that we all must travel our our road of sanctification ordained by God, lived out by us in his providence on our way to the celestial city. But we remember that grace alone puts us on that road and keeps us from veering off of it. And so our hope is never in what we do in this life, but in what was done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so as we endeavor to obey God's word and to show, render gratitude to Christ, let us remember that even in our best, we are unprofitable servants and worthy of nothing. And so let us praise him for his grace and abundant love to us. His indescribable gift. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do give you thanks this morning. We thank you that, one, that we don't find ourselves in the same situations as those in this first century context. We thank you, Lord, that by your common grace and by the work of faithful men and women, that slavery in America has been abolished. We thank you, Lord, that you continue to build your church and that we continue to seek to be faithful to you. We thank you that you hold us in such things. We pray for those around the world who are still enslaved unjustly. Lord, may the hand of your judgment fall upon those man-stealers. May it fall upon them, Lord, swiftly and justly. Lord, we pray that also that many of those who are enslaved may come to know you, may come to know their freedom in Christ so that in this life they may not know freedom, in the age to come they may know it abundantly. May, may none of that hinder the work of the church, which is to spread the gospel near and far. Oh Lord, help us, help us to live according to that righteousness imputed to us by Christ, that we may with joy and cheer in our hearts serve one another. And trust in your sovereign will in the various stations of life and circumstances we find ourselves in. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.